Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. open up your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 15. We're going to cover two chapters tonight. While you're doing that, for the first time in the history of the church, we actually have three missions teams out simultaneously right now. So we have a children's ministry team with Pastor Steph and Jake and Lexi. Um, Pastor Chet is in a place unknown. We can't tell you or we have to kill you. Um, because it's dangerous where he's at. And then the ladies just landed. I got word about four hours ago that they are in Romania. And so they will be driving to a town called Polanka, which is right on the border uh, of the Ukraine and ministering to a whole group of moms and their children that have been displaced by the war in Ukraine, uh, beginning uh, while you're asleep tonight sometime. So Uh, Let's lift them up in prayer, and we'll turn our attention to God's Word as we look at Whose Land Is It? Part 3. Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to be your hands and your feet, your mouthpiece, Lord, your provision, your power, Lord, your touch, your words of comfort and encouragement. And we ask that you be with Andrea and the team of ladies that are going to be ministering to these broken homes, these wives that may never see their husbands again, uh, these children that may never see their dads again, their sons, their daughters, their grandsons, uh, Lord, all separated by this war that's going on in Ukraine. We ask that you bring an end to it, or that you'd end the misery and the suffering. Uh, we pray for Pastor Chet tonight, and Zach is there away ministering, Lord, to truly some heroes of the faith. And we pray that you would strengthen them as they continue to share your word with these men that will go back and take that word to a place that if they were to be caught, they would be certainly jailed and possibly killed. And so we ask uh, that you would be their protection and strength, power for staff and Jake and Lexi, as they minister to these wonderful kids as they do vacation Bible school uh, for hundreds of kids there in El Salvador, we pray that you would just grant them words from heaven that they would know uh, that they're being used of you and that you, Jesus, would be glorified in all of these places and all of these things. We thank you for allowing us the privilege to be there. And we pray now that you take your word, encourage your church, strengthen us to receive, Lord, our portion of the inheritance that we have in your kingdom while we're still on this earth. So bless us as we study in Jesus' name. Amen. As we open up to chapter 15, and really the third part of what is typically known as the the conquest, is the lands are now parsed out and divided, and each tribe receives its inheritance. So they cast lots, and those lots fall on the various tribes. One of the things that we have to remember is that God made a promise to Abraham. That promise was a land that was described, and it says, To your descendants I have given you this land from the river Egypt 
to the great river Euphrates. So now in this map, as you look at it, uh, just an FYI, if you want to go with us to Israel, we have exactly seven spots left out of 150. We'll be leaving in about four months. And we will travel every single area of that picture. We're going to be going into Jordan, which is on the right side. Uh, obviously, Israel on the left, all of it. Egypt to the south. To the north is Lebanon and Syria. And so when you look at that land, that's modern-day Israel today. But as far as God was concerned, the land that was his, that he gave to his people, stretched 365 miles that way to the Nile River and 590 miles that way to the river Euphrates. That's the land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this very tiny portion of that, called the promised land, was the land that God gave to the various tribes to inhabit. And so as he does this, He's making good on a promise that he made to Abraham, to his descendants Isaac, finally to Jacob and to Jacob's 12 sons. And so while this can be tedious, it's also very important because it reminds us of the faithfulness of God in the details of life. And so as we open up to verse 1 here in chapter 15, and so this was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is Jesus' tribe. This is his lineage. This is his heritage. And so as you look at this map, you'll notice Judah is the largest portion. And in the middle of it is Simeon. And so the tribe of Judah, according to their families, to the border of Edom at the wilderness of Zen, or Sin in your Bible if it's in English. And so the wilderness of Sin was the area that we would call today the Sinai Peninsula and part of Saudi Arabia. And one of the things that you can grasp very quickly when you travel there, what is called Edom today, uh, was known then as Edom, is today part of Saudi Arabia. So when you travel to the very southernmost point in Israel today, you can stand in a point that's about 15 miles from Egypt and about 19 miles from Saudi Arabia and about one mile from Jordan and is in Israel. And so this hotly contested land, God gave to God's chosen people, Israel. And the reason that we look at it today from a very different biblical perspective than perhaps the UN does, or perhaps the world governments do, they look at it as, well, Israel, give back the land. The thing that you will come to terms with when you travel there, if you look at the land of Manasseh, which is in the middle of what is today modern-day Israel, the, the city of Beth Shean and Jezreel are at the top end of the, the land of Manasseh, As you look at this land, if you go from the Jordan River to what is effectively called the West Bank Territories, the land that was partitioned off and given to Yasser Arafat, the PLO and Hamas, Israel is exactly five miles wide at that point in time. So to give you some idea of what that's like to govern a country, to have have autonomy over your own country, imagine that you and I are sitting here in Gardena, and we decide that we want to attack our neighbor, well, in this case, our neighbor would be living in Redondo Beach. It's that close. And so Israel has this very tiny portion of what was promised to them that was supposed supposed to be the better part of a 1,000 miles wide, 
and 800 miles deep. Today you can travel in four and a half hours from one end of Israel all the way to the other end of Israel. You can't drive from Redondo Beach to Blythe much quicker than that. So it gives you an idea of this contested land that is so important because it was promised to the tribes of Jacob. It is their inheritance. It doesn't belong to the so-called Palestinians, and we're going to cover that tonight. To the southern boundary. Our southern border began at the Salt Sea, the shore thereof, which is the Dead Sea, lowest point on earth, the most saline body of water. The second is the Salton Sea uh, here in California. The bay that faces southward, and obviously a south-facing bay would be to the bottom of that map, which would be the Red Sea. Uh, So they're speaking of these borders that are very definable even to this day. And then it went to the southern side, the ascent of of Erabim, and passed along to Zin and ascended to the south side of Kadesh Barnea, passed along through Hezron and Adar and went up to Kakara. And from there, it went towards Asmon and to the brook of Egypt. And the brook of Egypt is actually a stream that flows into the Nile, which is about 200 miles from the south end of that map you're staring at. This shall be your southern border. And so God being very descriptive, the east border was the Salt Sea as far as the mouth of the River Jordan. And so when you look at the River Jordan, it's one of the shortest rivers in the world. It begins in springs up by Mount Hermon in the north, the upper part of that picture. It actually come, pops directly out of the ground. It does not have a typical tributary source. Uh, it simply comes out of the ground of the springs at Banyas and out of the springs that are in southern Lebanon, travels down, forms the Sea of Galilee, which is that little tiny lake you see up there. It's actually not a sea, it's a lake, smaller than Lake Tahoe. Travels all the way down to the Dead Sea, so the mouth of the River Jordan dumps into the Dead Sea. So it's constantly getting fresh water. But it is very saline. So God is making clear to the Jewish people, I'm giving you a very, very, very specific piece of land. He's not being vague in any way, shape, or form. And the border went up to Beth Hogloth and passed along to Beth Arabah. And to the border it went up to Bohan, the son of Reuben. The other border went up to Debrir, to the valley of Achor, and turned northward towards Gilgal. And so these are all cities that you can start to become familiar with as you study the Bible. So we know that Joshua has already fought a battle at Gilgal. Uh, he's conquered people there. And, and he moves on to the south side of the valley, and the border continues to in Shemesh and to in Rogal, and all of these cities south to Hinnom, ultimately to Raphium, to Mount Ephron, to Mount Seir. And Mount Seir is interesting because if you subscribe to National Geographic, uh, you've seen multiple articles involving Mount Seir. Mount Seir is actually very close to Jordan. We're going to be traveling to Petra. Those two areas are only separated by about 20 miles. And it is in this area that you find the conglomeration of archaeological evidence of the subsequent existence of the Hebrew people, the Egyptian people, and the Nabataean people. And so all of these people groups gathered together in this particular region, and preceding them was this group that was one of the sons of Noah that came after the flood, Canaan. 
And so this whole region, when you study archaeology in the region of Israel, they will refer to a very specific period of time called the Canaanite period. The way it is distinguished is undressed stone. Stones were stacked, they were left raw, they were not chiseled in any way, shape, or form, they were simply stacked. And so anywhere you have walls that are built with stones that are in their natural state, and you date the pottery to that era, you are looking at a Canaanite civilization. And so it's very easy to determine who got where first and at what time they were inhabited. So when you find a conglomeration of Canaanite walls with Israelite artifacts, things with Hebrew on them, you know that that is a period of time that was roughly 3,000 years ago. And so this whole area of the world is one of the most highly excavated areas of our planet with regard to archaeology. And so there are over a thousand active digs right now between Israel and eastern Jordan, the northern part of, of Egypt, to where they're attempting to disprove what you are reading in your Bible. They want to find a reason to discount this. Because if this is true, then that land doesn't belong to anybody but Israel. It belongs to the Jewish people as far as God's concerned. The world is trying to tell Israel to give it away. And Israel is saying, no, God gave it to us. It belongs to us. We began inhabiting it from our position today 3,000 years ago. It doesn't belong to a group of people that didn't get their name until they were named that by the emperor Trajan to be called Roman Palestine or Palestina. And so here's this group of people that's laid hold of a name that you're going to see here in a moment. Notice it says, the southern slope of the Jebusite city, and you might have in your English Bibles the New King James, the city which is Jerusalem. Originally, Jerusalem was inhabited by the Jebusites. One of the most fascinating uh, inscriptions that's ever been found in Jerusalem was found by Elat Mansar. Uh, she was excavating the city of David. Uh, there is a water system tunnel, which we actually go through if you are okay with confined spaces and water up to about the middle of your thighs. And at the entrance to it on the southern end, this is the tunnel excavated by the Jebusites. And it was inscribed by the great King Hezekiah himself. And so it's known as Hezekiah's tunnel, but it is attributed to the Jebusite kings. And so the history of the area actually identifies the Jebusites as having been there and that it was conquered by the Jewish people, ultimately David, and then passed on to the great King Hezekiah as Jerusalem became inhabited by the Jewish people well over 3,000 years ago. And so very interesting to our biblical understanding of this region of the world is this little map. Because this map, you can still find every single one of these biblical cities has archaeological evidence of its existence. Ashdod is there, Ashkelon is there, Gaza, you've all heard of the Gaza Strip, 
Well, it was named after Gaza, the actual city of the Philistines. Beth Shemesh, all of these cities, Beth Shion, we go there. It's the largest Roman, Roman ruin in the southern Levant. And so these are real places that had real people that are really identified in your Bible. Tremendous to our biblical understanding and to the truth of Scripture. So when you go looking for these cities that are in your Bible, they are there. You can still visit the ruins of them to this day. So this is the boundary, it says there in verse 12, of the children of Judah and all around according to their families. The next thing that we see is the land that ultimately will be allotted to Caleb and his family. Caleb was not only a man of great and very, very, very bold deeds. In other words, he was a person, he was a doer. You know, we use the phrase, well, he's an A personality. Or or perhaps that person is an overachiever. If there was ever an overachiever in the Bible, it was Caleb. Caleb had no quit in Caleb. He, he was that person. He was the guy that's like, if you tell him it couldn't get done, he went and proved you wrong. That included such deeds as driving out the, the children of Anak or the giants that we knew as the Philistines, the one that David will actually end up fighting as this great Philistine giant, Goliath. And now to Caleb, verse 13, the son of Jephthah. <coughs> excuse me. He gave a share among the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord, to Joshua. Remember, Joshua had finally turned his his eyes to the Lord. He's now seeking the Lord for everything at Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron. So Hebron is just south of Jerusalem. Uh, If you've ever seen the the riots that have gone on over Rachel's tomb, Rachel's tomb is located in Hebron. And so this is an area of, of intense fighting today. Uh, between the Palestinian residents and the Jewish residents there because they both claim that it's theirs. Arba was the father, notice this, of Anak. So this city that is now called Hebron to this day uh, was a former Philistine city. It was inhabited by those people that David would ultimately defeat uh, as, as he and the children of Israel come against them and he stares Goliath in the eye and says, uh, you come at me with a sword and a spear, but I come at you in the name of the Lord. And so Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talami, the children of Anak. And then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Debrir, uh, formerly Kirjath Saphir. And Caleb said, who is it that attacks Kirjath Saphir and takes it, and I will give him a cash as my daughter's and my daughter as his wife. So Caleb's kind of a, a shrewd guy. He says, Look, I, I I need some battle companions here. You guys have all seen my daughter. If you can go kill off the rest of the the Anakin, um, you can have my daughter. Now I'm not suggesting that you offer your daughters up to, you know, somebody who's really good at war, but it was an acceptable behavior during those days and times. Matter of fact, most marriages were actually arranged, and so this is a type of of an arranged marriage. And now so it was, when she came to him, that she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. And so she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? And she answered, Give me a blessing. 
Since you have given me the land of the south, give me also springs of water. And so he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And so Caleb exhibits a, a characteristic that we will see carry out through the rest of his days. He refuses to quit. He believes God. And he does absolutely everything that he can to receive the promises that the Lord has made to him. One of the things that I think we face in our modern society is, is what I call the allure of the world. As the world speaks into our lives, the world, your flesh, and the devil are trying to draw you away from the promises of God. And, and the world is saying, come over here, and God's saying, no, I want you over there. Caleb was the man who said, I care what God wants. My concern is for the things of the Lord. I'm not concerned for the things of this world. I want to be pleasing to God, and whatever God wants for me, that's what I want for myself. There's a tremendous lesson for us in the world that we live in today. And he believed it so much that he was unafraid to offer his daughter in marriage to the man who could help him carry out what God had said. And while, again, I, I don't suggest that you necessarily go out and prearrange uh, who your daughter is going to marry, you want that your husband, your future wife, or your daughter's future husband, to be a man who cares about the things of the Lord. So don't give your daughters away to men who don't care about the things of the Lord. Make sure that your daughter is interested in men who care about the things of the Lord. And the same thing for your sons. Make sure that your sons care about women who care about the things of the Lord. The lesson here is, is deep. It's profound, actually, for us. Because when you just turn your children over to the world, the world will have its way with your children. You have to lead them. You have to guide them. You have to direct them. Notice that she picks up, his daughter picks up, give me a blessing since you've given me land. Basically, she's starting to imitate her father's boldness in asking for this blessing. Make no mistake, if you're here tonight and you're a parent, if you want to be a parent, if you're a future parent, if you're a parent in waiting or a parent to be, as you sit here tonight, you want to raise your children in training in the admonition of the Lord so they will desire the things that God desires for them. They are going to learn that chiefly from you. If you're a grandparent, model godly living for your grandkids so that your grandchildren are drawn towards the things of the Lord so that what they desire most in life are the things that God wants for them because that is always the best for them. The world's going to offer them all manner of things and not all of it is good. Amen? Raise your own children in the training, in the admonition of the Lord. Pass along a great spiritual heritage to your kids. The next portion of this is very long, 42 verses. And this was the inheritance of the tribe of Judah. So it goes on to explain and to their families and the limits of the tribe of the children of Judah and it is a very long list of names. And we're going to cover some of them because you're going to notice that they are important in the history of the children of Israel more than some of the rest. Some of these are villages and places that would have been very important to the children of Israel. Edom to the south, 
Interesting that the Edomites uh, in the south, if you can think back to that map and remember that you can download these slides from the internet, they're available to you so you can pull it up on your phone and go, oh, that's where it is. The Edomites are going to be a thorn in the side of the children of Israel right now in this particular setting. One of the beauties of this particular book is this is one of the ones we have multiple copies of the, of the book of Joshua that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we have two of them, one from 186, the other one from about 210 B.C., that have these very words written in them. So we know that no New Testament author, we know that no Israelite in the modern sense, we know that no one prior to about 200 B.C. had the opportunity to affect change in these words because we have copies that are that old. And so these words are the words to the people at least until 200 B.C. They refer to a period of time that are 800 years older than that, but we actually have this particular book, a copy of it, that's been dated by secular archaeologists to to about 10 B.C. To Shema, to Shaul, to Rehomam, to Ishtal, to Zorah, these, these cities, Abdulam, to the villages of Zinan and Hadesh, Migdal and Gad, Mizpah, Lachish, Eglon, Makadesh, Libna and Esther. These villages and towns from Ekron to the sea that lay near Ashdod, which is obviously the Mediterranean Sea, with their villages, Ashdod with its towns and its villages, Gaza with its towns and its villages. So when the Ewan is haggling over who Gaza belongs to, who did God say it belongs to? The children of Israel. Interesting fact about the Gaza Strip. When the Gaza Strip was given back, ostensibly, to to the Palestinian Authority, to Yasser Arafat, it was a thriving community built by the Jewish people. The whole area of Gaza, replete with all kinds of hydroponic gardens, manufacturing capabilities, plants, all kinds of jobs. In fact, most of the people that worked in those plants were actually Palestinians. The moment that they were given that land, the Palestinian Authority took over. And guess what the first thing they did was? They destroyed the schools that the Jews built. They destroyed the factories the Jews built. The hydroponic gardens the Jews built. They destroyed everything that the Jews built. Because this battle is still going on today. This is a fight that's many thousands of years old. There's still, in essence, this conquest. And portions of the people have not yet yielded to the plans of God. But from God's perspective, he gave to the tribe of Judah the Gaza Strip. So when someone asks me, well, who does it belong to? I just tell them, well, from God's perspective, it belongs to the, the Jewish people. Because God said so. Not because the UN decides something different. But God said that it belongs to the Jewish people. 
to the Great Sea and its coastline, that's the Mediterranean, to the mountain country, which is Carmel. We, we talk about the mountain country, maybe you're talking about the San Gabriels or the San Bernardino Mountains or the Sierra Nevada. When you're in Israel, the mountains begin in Carmel, run across the Jezreel Valley and up to Mount Hermon, and that's it. To put that into perspective for you, it's a two-hour drive from Jerusalem. So the mountains are just simply in the middle of Israel and to the north corner, the northeast corner of Israel. And so it's defining where these mountains are. And they are the only mountains. Everything else is relatively flat or it's a valley or it's rolling hills. And he goes on to the 11 cities, to the 10 cities of the Decapolis. Arab, Duma. Eshion, Beth Tupa, Kazeor, and Jezreel. The whole center of the country of Israel is a very long valley, about 138 miles long, called the Jezreel Valley. To Carmel, there's the mountain range. To Jezreel, there's the valley. To Gibeah and Temna, the ten cities, there is the Decapolis of the Romans. Bethshean was the center, the capital of the Decapolis, the ten cities with their villages. And so all of these places, Beth Araba to Nishban to the city of Salt to Ingedi, which you know from David's journey as he's fleeing from Saul, where does he hide? In Ingedi, which means the springs of the goat, with their six cities and their villages. Now notice what it says next. Verse 63, the end of chapter 15. And as for the Jebusites, so the Bible confirms that the Jebusites were in the land. Very, very, very important. Because the Jebusites were disputed for a a little more than 500 years as to whether they ever existed Then they started turning up a little bit of archaeological evidence. And then in 1965, we find this inscription that actually says that Hezekiah's tunnel was originally dug by the Jebusites. The reason that on that map, when you go back to look at it, you see that Jerusalem's not on there is it was originally called Jebus. Jerusalem and Jebus are the same place. And so when the Jewish people come and they capture the Jebusite city, they're taking the land that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in a very literal sense, and they're doing exactly what God told them to do, which is to conquer the Jebusite and the Canaanite villages. And the children of Judah could not drive them out. So they learned to live with the Jebusites. The Jebusites... And the Hebrew people lived side by side. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem. Here's what your Bible says to this day. And so there are those that believe that somehow there is a connection between the Jebusites and the modern day Palestinians. So let's look at that from a historical perspective because it affects the world that we live in. If you look at what the UN 
does on a, on a regular basis. It spends an inordinate amount of its time debating things that have to do with this little tiny sliver of land that we call Israel. Many Palestinian Arabs, including Yasser Arafat before he passed away, prior to his death, Fasil Hassini, the head of Fatah, claimed that Palestinians were descended from this Canaanite tribe. And that's become their, their claim to the city of Jerusalem. It's like it's ours. We were here first. The problem is, is that true? There are all kinds of politically affected, historically affected places in, in the Middle East that no one debates when they find the archaeological evidence to the contrary. Unfortunately, Israel is seemingly exempt from this normally accepted behavior in archaeology. When you find something that clearly defines a specific city as being what it purports to be, then it's accepted as fact. The unfortunate part is, with Israel, nothing is accepted as fact. In fact, no one wants Israel to exist except for primarily the United States and some of Europe. And so the connection between the modern Palestinians, the ancient Jebusites, would in fact trump any Jewish claim to the land. The problem is, is there a, is there a connection? So who were these people? When you look at the historical guide of the Bible, when you look at these places, and when you look at the names of these places and you assemble this, the first mention of the Jebusites actually occurs in Genesis in the list of descendants of Noah. And so there, there is a treatment uh, to the people that would be the descendants that ultimately would be called Jebusites. And, and so the book of Exodus uh, goes on to kind of remind them that they were to drive out the Jebusites, which that didn't happen either. In Deuteronomy, God orders the Jews to completely destroy all of these people, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and oh yes, the Jebusites. And so each time Israel is unfaithful to do what God tells them to do, they end up with a problem. So guess what they did? They created their own problem by not doing what God said very specifically with these particular people. And so by the time we get to this passage of Scripture, God gives this unconditional uh, promise, but they are supposed to again drive them out. What do they do? They don't drive them out. They don't get them out. They dwell with them. And we're told that. The Bible tells us that. And so that's going to be a problem, and it's going to be a perpetual problem. In the book of Judges, Israel is recorded as disobeying the, the, the order from God. Basically, he says, destroy them, annihilate them, because they had committed abominations before the Lord. And guess what they do? In the book of Judges, which is the very next book after the book of Joshua, they let them stay. You can't make an agreement with the enemy of God. It's not possible. You're looking at it from two totally different perspectives. You may have your mental reason. You may have your emotional reason. You may have your physical reason. You might have your um, psychological reason. You may have your provisional reason. You, you may have your monetary reason, your political reason. You might have all kinds of reasons. But when God tells you to do something, and it is very direct... It's on you if you don't do it. And so that's one of the warnings, and it's also this deep lesson that's found here 
in the book of Joshua. The children of Israel, for whatever reason, we're not actually told all the reasoning. We have very little information about the Jebusites specifically, other than God repeatedly said, don't leave them in the land. Well, you know, they're kind of nice. They make really good wine. They got beautiful daughters. They're great at building walls. We don't, we don't actually know. I'm, I'm, in essence, giving you allegory here. But what we do know is the Jewish people disobeyed God over and over and over and over and over again. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, it is a Canaanite woman who approaches Jesus because her daughter is possessed by a demon. I think Matthew picked up on that really quickly. Why? Because he knew that his people had, in essence, made a bargain with some of the Canaanite people, very specifically the Jebusites. And so here comes this situation. Jesus initially tells the woman that to a sister would be the equivalent of helping a despised dog, but he eventually relents. And by extension, basically Jesus is saying, look, this problem exists because you didn't do what you were told to do. Church, we have to be better at following what God tells us to do. And it is hard sometimes, isn't it? Is it hard to stand for righteousness when everybody in your office wants to do the unrighteous thing? Is it, is it hard when you're filling out a mortgage application when you've got your mortgage banker telling you, well, if you just lie about your income, it'll be fine? That's hard, isn't it? Why? Because you have to trust God that God can do a miracle because the two things don't add up. And if he wants you to have that mortgage, then he's going to need to make it happen or you can make it happen. And then you might have Jebusites living in your home. You understand what I'm saying? It's like, God didn't want you to have that house, and he used a mortgage application to tell you that. God wants you to have it. No power in the universe can stop you. You understand what I'm saying? If God truly wants it to be yours, it's a done deal. But if it's not yours, and you force the issue, because you like what the Jebusites represent, shame on you. And you'll live long enough to regret it, just as the Jewish people did. There is a clear record throughout the Bible of the conquest of Jebus, over and over and over the Assyrians conquered Jebus. The only people that don't conquer Jebus is the Israelites. The Scythians, the Babylonians, nobody else had a problem, but the Israelites let them stay. And they left a problem in place. 
in essence, they created the myth that is being floated right now. So the claim to Jebusite heritage within the modern Palestinian community, though a recent development, was actually put in place by the Jewish people themselves. They allowed for this myth to, to take root because they partially followed the commands of the Lord. For many Muslims today, the reason they still believe this is Jerusalem became this important place where the prophet Muhammad made, makes this night journey and supposedly this information is contained within the Quran and the Hadith, which is a, in essence a commentary on the life of, of Muhammad. And, but if you, if you actually read the story, it, it's talking about the supposed mosque that exists that was built by the Jebusites. The problem is none of the mosques that are in Jerusalem were built before the mid-600 B.C., or excuse me, A.D., not B.C. So there's a gap of almost 1,500 years of archaeological evidence that says this not only can't be true, but it's enshrined in the Quran. In other words, there is a drastic error in the Quran that says this is where Muhammad went, and he went there in 996 B.C. when the mosque that is on the Temple Mount to this day wasn't built until 691 A.D. And the problem with that is in the intervening period of time, there were not one but two Jewish temples on the Temple Mount. The first one destroyed by the Babylonians the second one destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. All of the mosques on the Temple Mount were built about 1,500 years ago. They are new compared to the history of the Jewish people. So the Jewish people, when they build Solomon's Temple in roughly 586 B.C., or it's destroyed in 586 B.C., and then they build another one, which is enlarged by Herod, which is destroyed in 70 AD, there will be another 600 years before there is any mosque built on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And yet there's this lie that Muhammad made a journey to a mosque that didn't exist until 1,400 years after it was supposed to be there. So when someone says, well, we've had this for 3,000 years, the truth is, no, you haven't. The Jewish people inhabit it from about 1,000 B.C. forward. They were, kicked out of the, they were kicked out of the land and then brought back into the land in 1948. But the bottom line is, other than the Arab period, which began in 691 to the late 1500s, the Jewish people inhabited that land, and the archaeological evidence proves that. When you read through the inscriptions, when you look at the, the Roman sack of Jerusalem, when you look at the mosques that are there, the Al-Haram Mosque, which is the oldest one, and it was built, actually, in a later period of time. When you look at the mosque in Medina, when you look at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is the ugly one, you know, some people say, oh, the Golden Dome, you know, it's so wonderful. Well, that's actually the 
Haram al-Sharif, that's the Dome of the Rock Mosque. That one sits over Mount Moriah. The reason that one was built is it had nothing to do with early Islam. It was built during that period of time. But that was built over the rock that supposedly Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac on. Abraham is revered in Islam. And so all of this history about this land and the Jebusites and the people who supposedly uh, took control of it then enter our period of time and we come to the Jewish people returning to the land in 1948 and then immediately they're attacked by every single one of their Arab neighbors. They're literally in the land for three days. And a war ensues in 1948. They're then again attacked in 1967 by all of the same countries, except now they're armed with Soviet military technology. Jerusalem is taken over by Jordan. Enter the British forces under General Allenby, for whom the bridge over the Jordan River is named. Allenby drives them back out. They retake Jerusalem. Ariel Sharon stands on the Temple Mount and proceeds to, guess what? Give the Temple Mount back to the Jordanians because they don't want to fight. Joshua and Caleb had it right. God gave them the land. It belongs to God. God gave it to the Jewish people to inhabit And every single time they've given something back, the land for peace thing, it hasn't worked. Not because it isn't a warm gesture. Not because it isn't an attempt at peace. Many of the motivations are probably right in the hearts of the people making them. The problem is, God's word says something different. And so until that's fixed, and I believe it won't be fixed until the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords comes again, I don't think until Jesus puts his feet down on the Temple Mount itself is this particular problem going to be resolved. The Jebusites are still there. You have all these inscriptions, and people always refer to them that this is the land, and you know, this is the land that Allah gave to us, and all. Most of those inscriptions on the Dome of the Rock Mosque were actually put there in 1876. They're not ancient at all. They were an attempt to to shame, in essence, the Jewish people from coming back into the land. One One of the reasons that there are so many Arab graves that are right around the base of the wall in the southern and the eastern part of the old city of Jerusalem, well, it was an attempt to keep the Jewish people from going back to the Temple Mount. So they desecrated the area of the Temple Mount with bodies. The Jebusite conquest that was supposed to happen has a lasting effect to this day. Your Bible is absolutely accurate. It tells the real story. It tells us what's happened. All of these things point towards a God who knew exactly what he wanted the Jewish people to do and told them what it was. And they refuse to do it, and they're still paying the price today. Chapter 16. Nearly 11 centuries later, they put up all those wonderful 
the Jews shall be driven from the land. It didn't happen until modern times. The Jewish people aren't going to be delivered from the land because the Bible says that once they go back into the land, they won't ever be driven out again. So people can say what they want. But if I were a wagering person, which I am not, you won't find me at the sports book betting on Israel. But I'm taking Israel against any and all comers because God said the land belongs to them. Now we find the borders of the province belong to the sons of Joseph. So Ephraim, the half-tribe of Manasseh, on the west side of the Jordan. And the lot fell to Joseph, verse 16 begins, from the Jordan by Jericho. So Jericho is now the capital city of the West Bank. That is the headquarters of the PLO. So when you travel to the West Bank, you go to to Jericho or to Ramallah, um, you you would have entered into what is the West Bank territories. There are these huge signs that warn people if they're of Jewish descent that this is an an Arab-controlled area. It's patrolled actually by the Israeli Defense Forces. But make no mistake, it it is still contested to this day. The waters of Jericho, there's a spring there that gushes at a minimum of 180 gallons per minute, which is significant in a desert wilderness. The wilderness that goes up through the mountains to Bethel and out of Bethel to Luz, to the border of the Archites and to, to Ataroth, downward to the boundary of the Jephthalites, that's the tribe of Jephthah, as far as the lower boundary of Heth, Beth-Haron to Gezir, and it ends at the sea. And so the children of Joseph, Manasseh, And Ephraim took their inheritance. And to the border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was thus. The border of their inheritance was the east side of Arath Adar and the upper Beth Haron. And to the border it went out to the sea, to the the side of Mechlamath, to the border that went around to Tanath Shaloah. And it passed around by the east to Janoa. And then it went down from Janoa to Atarath to Narath. And reach to Jericho. And see, as you can see it's just basically when you do a property division here in the state of California, it's generally defined by meets and bounds. There are a series of angles and declinations that project a line that would technically go into space, but it is a specific line that is your eastern boundary. And so when you get your legal description, it tells you all of those coordinates. And so there'll be an eastern boundary and a western boundary and a northern boundary and a southern boundary in a general geographical sense. God is doing that. He's saying, this is what's on the east and this is what's on the west and this is what's on the north. This is what's on the south and those are the boundaries of the land. So the children of Israel shouldn't have had any problem figuring out where they were supposed to be. Like these are the lands. And he used things that were both geographic and also sociologic. In other words, areas where people were inhabiting lands. It's like that city. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the children of Ephraim according to their families. The separate cities from the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh. And all their cities and villages. And they did not drive out. Here it comes again. The Canaanites who dwell in Gezer. But the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced laborers. And so when you look at this situation, one of the reasons it's so bitter and so terse 
And I want to be very careful here. There are many, many, many wonderful Palestinian people. There are many, many, many wonderful Jordanian people. There are many, many wonderful Lebanese people. Many, many wonderful Syrian people. This is not against anyone. This is simply saying that God had said, look, this is going to be a problem for you. If you don't take control of this land, I gave it to you. I want you to take control of it. He simply said, drive them out. He did not say, destroy them. He said, I want them to, in essence, work for you. You don't want them you know, involved in all of your politics. So when you look at the complexities of Jewish politics today, the Knesset, about a third of it, that's the equivalent of our Congress, are Palestinian Arabs. The other two-thirds are Jewish people, Jewish descent. And so you constantly have these conflicts. That's why they can't get anything done. If you might remember, they had, what, six presidential elections before somebody finally had a majority because no one could win a majority. That's what happened from not obeying what the Lord had said. And so there are some spiritual lessons in all of this, and we'll end with these, some treasures for you. Some of us senior saints have to be an encouragement to the younger generation because we have been there. We've done that. We, and, and this is not boastful. It's not prideful. It has nothing to do with any of that. It simply says that someone like me has made an awful lot of mistakes throughout his life. And I've watched God be right over and over and over and over again. And I have an obligation to tell the younger generation I've already made that mistake, and you don't want to make the mistakes that I made. You want to do what God said. I tried that way. I tried negotiating around that particular part of God's word. I tried doing something that, you know, maybe it seemed right in the moment. There was a reason for it even. And so be careful. We, we live in a world that does not want you to be wholly sold out to Christ. And it's time for the church to rise to the top, not sink to the bottom. Like Caleb, as believers, we have been called to capture mountains, to conquer giants. But only will we be successful if we wholly follow the Lord, if we're relying on God, if we're listening to his word, if we will do what he asks, if we will believe him for his promises, will we be successful? We'll not be successful if we try and do it our way. We just simply won't. You may have some successes, but you will not be successful in the things of the Lord with the arm of flesh. The battle belongs to the Lord, and that battle is fought in the spirit. It is a spiritual battle. It's not carnal. And so we have to fight it the right way. That's how you conquer mountains. That's how you defeat giants. It's by allowing the power of the Lord through the Holy Spirit to fight those battles for you and to go with you and into that battle. The second thing in, in all of these this two and a half tribes, God rejects our first birth. Look, you were born once, but you need to be born again. God accepts your second birth. Your first birth, everybody gets those. 
If you're here tonight, you were born one time. But Jesus said you must be born again. There's no substitute for it. You, you can't live a successful life for God without being born again. So make sure that you have that second birth. Make sure that you're walking in the light. Make sure that you're listening to the voice of God. Make sure that you're a doer of the word. Because people that will do what God asks have God fight the battles for them. People that do their own thing have to fight their own battles. I don't know about you, but I got, my arms are getting tired of flapping. I, I, can't, I can't fly very far unless the Lord carries me. And so let's trust him. And let's do what he says. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. We have about two-thirds of our pastoral staff, I think, are somewhere in the world right now. And so we're going to be a little light on pastors for prayer. I do believe we'll have a few down front. But if you don't know Jesus, tonight's the night of salvation for you. Just come and say, I want to know Jesus tonight. Serve him with a whole heart. Amen. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for the times when I have not fully done what you've asked and you have taken care of it anyway. Lord, I would pray that you'd help all of us to really listen to your voice and to do what you say, to be completely proactive about following you. Lord, not reactive, not when problems come, but beforehand, just believe you, trust you, and act on what your word says. Lord, we give you afresh and anew the things that are our land of conquest. Lord, areas that we know you want us to take control of by your spirit. We can't do it without you, Lord. So we're asking tonight that you would move in this place to give us victory over those giants that exist in our lives. Lord, those areas to where we haven't driven out the Jebusites. Lord, maybe somebody tonight is struggling with drugs. Maybe they're struggling with alcohol tonight. Perhaps a relationship, some sinful behavior that has become a giant to them and they've learned to live with the sons of Anak. God, I pray that there be no Jebusites in our homes. Lord, maybe it's our movies that we watch. Perhaps it's the things that we read, some website that we turn to. God, would you defeat those giants? We surrender them to you, Lord. We can't kill them ourselves, but you can. And so, God, we ask that you would make us strong and mighty. Let us be like Caleb was. Lord, conquering mountains, slaying giants to the last day. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.